Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and may you find peace and grace in all the words that are before you. Uh, We are in this second Sunday of Christmas. I know for like a lot of us, we're just like, oh, Christmas is over. It's done with. But no, it's actually the second Sunday in the church calendar year. uh, And it is called Epiphany Sunday. Uh, We are still in Christmas, according to the church. So maybe you've already put your decorations away. I know for myself, my tree is literally in my front yard with the tree stand still attached to it. It's on its side, so we kind of look like the Griswold family. It is, it looks terrible in our front yard, but whatever. Uh, we've packed up, a lot of us have packed up Christmas, um, and it's just like we've, we've kind of gone through it, right? And that over-commercialized sense of Christmas Uh, This season, where we put decorations up and we rush to get everything done, and oftentimes we barely take time to reflect on what Advent means and the intentionality behind the Advent season, we're like so focused on the day of Christmas that we use language like, at the end of the day, like, we made it. You guys, we made it through Christmas. We made, we got through, we, we, we made it through the holidays. This is kind of the language that oftentimes is used. Like we've been training for a marathon and we've made it through the marathon. And now we just need to ice our knees because everything hurts a little bit. Like that's what happens usually by the second Sunday of Christmas after New Year's has happened and we don't know what day it is or how much we've eaten or if we've eaten. I mean, everything's a little bit muddied. But as soon as that day passes, we oftentimes begin packing up those boxes and putting everything away for the next year. And in that process, we miss the moments of quiet reflection. We miss out on lighting candles in the awe of incarnation that happened. You see, Christmas isn't an event, and it isn't a tradition that we celebrate once a year. As Christians, Christmas is every day. What Christmas represents, the incarnation, God with us, the light in the darkness, is an everyday reality that we get to celebrate, that we get to hold on to and affirm. But oftentimes we feel the darkness. I know that I am feeling the darkness. I feel like there's a lot of desperate people in the world right now with the fires in Australia and what that represents for our globe for a potential war that might come about that our country might face. We don't know what that looks like. If you have been following the church news uh, within the United Methodist Church, Catalyst isn't United Methodist, but there's this this probable split that's going to happen within the United Methodist Church that's affecting a lot of Christians around the world. And there's big world hardships that might feel very dark right now, but there's also big personal hardships that you're facing that might make it hard for you to see the light in the darkness as well. And the over-commercialized Christmas promises of happiness that that Target puts out there and all these different things put out there, it, it does not bring lasting joy. So all of these decorations that we put up every year, it's okay to pack it up. 
It's okay to put away all of those things because our hope isn't in tinsel and stockings. We put our hope in Jesus. And that is what Christmas is about. Thank you, Archie. So for Christians, Christmas isn't a day. It's a life. And for those early Christians who wrote the stories of Jesus down, they understood this, that the, great, the good news of great joy that, that were for all the people that brought joy into impossible situations and personal hardships and broken hearts and broken bodies and broken relationships, this great news the angels announced, it wasn't contingent on financial resources or wars or rumors of wars or on the right career. This great joy came from a supernatural source that never runs out, that never gives up, that invades our hearts and minds. And sometimes this joy is felt through other people because sometimes that joy might feel far away for some of us. Sometimes it feels like it's so far away it's hard to remember what that joy even felt like in the first place. Sometimes it feels like darkness is winning in our lives or that the light never existed in the first place. But for me, I know that the light exists. I know that there is great hope, that there is good news of great joy. And so I can hold that for you when you can't hold that. And I trust that when I can't do it, when it's really dark for me, I have to trust that you can hold those things with me for me too. That is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. So Christmas reminds me that I'm not alone in my pain and in my joy. Christmas tells me that God loves me and is with me and has created this community to love me as imperfectly as we all love each other because we all love each other very imperfectly, but good enough, but well enough. And so we continue to celebrate Christmas long after the lights are taken down and long after the boxes are put away. In the second Sunday of Christmas, uh, usually the church celebrates it with uh, a specific reading of scripture. And it's almost always the reading out of Matthew chapter 2. And it's where the Magi come to visit Jesus and they bring these really improper gifts for a toddler, but whatever. And, and this is a, I know it ha- speaks about like a future thing, of course, but, but that, is the, that is usually the passage that is read. However, I'm not sure why. I'll have to study it and let you know, but I'm not sure why off the top of my mind. This Sunday is actually a different passage in the lectionary, and I'm not sure why. So if you look at the lectionary, it's almost always Matthew 2, and John 1 is what we're going to be in today, and that is almost always in the second or third Sunday of Advent. But today, it's John 1. And I think it's because the Holy Spirit was doing something in the church. I think, I think we need to hear John 1 today. I think for the new year, John 1 needs to be really clear in our minds. So at Terminated John 1, I feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a passage that my soul longs for. I feel like I'm very parched for it. We're going to be in John 1, verses 1 to 18. It's a familiar passage for a lot of you. Uh, it's really, it's really um, confusing in some ways, deep in some ways, but it's also super basic. It, it, it's a, we're going to read it. We'll get into it. <laughs> we'll be, read verses 1 to 18 this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that all through him, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of, all, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who he who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him. Well, that, that fallacy of independence is absolutely, it's absolutely true. We live into a world that, that claims independence. You don't need anybody. But, but we are heaving, having to be reminded that our dependence is completely on God but we are created for interdependence upon each other. And that is where a learning community, a church, thrives its best way is when we are dependent on God, but interdependent on each other as the children, the family of God, the heirs of this amazing um, God. So I'm going to keep going, and as this stuff comes up, we can keep coming into it, of course. What I think is interesting about this passage is how it begins. If you look at all the other Gospels, the other Gospels all begin with either the birth of Christ or his place of residence, essentially. Uh, Jesus from Nazareth is how Mark begins. John begins his Gospel within the beginning. And for the Jewish reader, for us today even, when we think of in the beginning, we immediately get transported back to Genesis. And so when John was compiled, this, this book, this uh, this gospel was compiled. It was compiled about 20 years before uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. I'm sorry, 20 years after the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. And so for the people that are reading this gospel and learning about Jesus, they've experienced crazy turmoil in their lives through the hand of Rome and it, it, the reason it was destroyed was because these Jewish people were being persecuted and they came together to create this revolt against Rome. 
Rome retaliated in such a huge way that took out so many people, hundreds of people, thousands of people were crucified, and then they went and they pillaged and destroyed the Jerusalem temple. There's parts of the stories where Roman soldiers went into the temple, pillaged it so terribly, they came out in like this kind of processional, victorious processional, carrying the menorah and all these temple sacred relics in a way of of blaspheming against God and against the Jewish people. And so 20 years after this happened, John writes a story that says, in the beginning. And for the people who would have been reading it, they would have been transported back to the space of recognizing that when chaos abounds in the world, the Spirit of God is the one that hovers over the chaos and makes sense and makes meaning and makes purpose and brings light into those darkest of places. So in the beginning, for me, sounds like a thousand do-overs when I've hurt somebody, when I've caused pain to myself or another person. In the beginning, to me, sounds like grace upon grace upon grace where there's this chaos and uncertainty in the world that is met by the Holy Spirit who brings a different sort of order and confidence because of God's love. There's this passage in Romans 8, and you're welcome to turn there, Romans 8:26. You can keep your hand in uh, John 1 because we'll be back there. Where Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit of God, and he says that there are so many times in your life that you won't know what to say or you won't even know how to pray. That when you are at the end of your rope and you have nothing left within you, when words fail you, Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 8 in Romans, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. When words fail you, I felt this before, and I know a lot of people have. When somebody is grieving, we say things like, I wish I had the right words, or I wish I knew what to say, or I don't know what to say, or or. I I don't have anything that I can put together that would bring you any kind of comfort because words are failing me right now. Or when we're in love or something amazing is happening before that we've never experienced before, we say things like, I don't have the words to quite describe this. (laughs) Our words fall short when describing a loved one we've lost or when we're trying to convey words of comfort to somebody in need. And I think this is why art... And poetry is so powerful for so many of us. There's certain kinds of movement and music and paint on canvas and words strung together in this own sort of cacophony that like builds layers of meaning and an interpretation where we once couldn't make sense of that huge emotion that we're feeling or that we're experiencing. We can't quite put it into words. Poetry becomes this feeble attempt to use words to bring deeper meaning to confusing aspects of life. And these avenues are incredibly communal. When we write poetry, when we create art, we're not meant to just put it under our bed for later. We're meant to bring it out into the open for others to see 
So instead of you by yourself trying to interpret what's going on in the world and what's happening within you, when you're in the loss of words because of the pain or grief or joy, your art brings other people into the experience of what you are feeling. Last night, I went to Claire's show at Arts Alive in Arcade, in Eureka. She has all of her art up, or a lot of art, not all of it, a lot of art up at Los Bagels. You guys have to go over there. It's phenomenal. And she used like all these colors of blues and yellows and greens and, and, and browns, and, and she created these masterpieces all up on there for everybody else to be invited into. She like brushed it all onto the canvases, and, and you can get a sense when looking at Claire's art you can get a sense of what she was feeling. And she has a little, little tickets underneath that says what it is that the painting says and what it was representing and a little thing on the side that tells us more about what was going on. But everything she painted was showing in the representation of what she was feeling. And it's all water. Everything is like these ocean scenes that she's painted. And the way that she described it was she described it how the Holy Spirit hovered over the chaos of the water. And it became, for Claire, it became like that holy breath of God over the water. It became the symbol of God's peace that covers all of the chaos, regardless of her circumstances, for better or for worse. And then she invited people into it. And every single person who looks at the art isn't like, oh, wow, yeah, I totally see the breath of God. But they see something in it, in it, that is resonating within their own soul. When words fail us, when we have nothing left to say, we can trust that God's spirit of grace and truth, who hovers over the chaos of life, is making wordless groans and desperate prayers for us. In the beginning, it says, was the word. When our words fall short, when we know that no matter what we say, it won't make anything better for the person who is hurting, we do know that there is a word that never fails. The word made flesh who dwells among us. That word for dwelled with us in, uh, what, what, what uh, verse is that? The word made flesh and made his dwelling within us. I can't remember exactly where it is in this passage, but I know it's in uh, verse 14. Made his dwelling among us. Maybe that's where it is. That sense of dwelling is, uh, is, is a word that is used for tabernacled. Tabernacled is like what Eugene Peterson says, that God was, was made, the word made flesh and, made his, and, and moved into the neighborhood, essentially. Like made his way among us which some neighborhoods are better than others, but regardless, God made his neighborhood your neighborhood. A tabernacle was a large tent. It was created and used for the purpose for the people to worship God and house God's presence while the Israelites were wandering the desert uh, after they were taken out of slavery in Egypt. So God's people used, they used to have to pack up this tent, this tabernacle, and then move the house of God to wherever they were going to go next set it up, and have that space available for the people to encounter the presence of God while they were on the move in the midst of their journey. But then what we see here is that the word was made flesh and tabernacled with us. 
From the flexible tabernacle came that brick and mortar temple, the same one that was destroyed by Rome. And the temple was set up in the same kind of way, but it was a place where it would house God's presence in this place called the Holy of Holies. So if you can imagine the temple as this rectangular sort of space, in the middle of it, towards the back end, was this this space that housed God's presence, it housed the Ark Ark of the Covenant, um, and once a year the high priest could go in and offer uh, incense to God and meet with God's presence, but that was it. One time a year, the highest priest possible. And then outside of the Holy of Holies was this court of the Jewish males, so the Jewish males who were in the highest standings, totally clean, could be close to the presence of God. Outside of that was the next layer, which was the court of Jewish females, And then outside of that was the court of Gentiles and the sick and the disabled. So the further out you get from God's presence, the closer you were away from God's presence. I mean, it was like you couldn't even access it if you tried. And then what we see is that God was made flesh and tabernacled with us. What's even more intimate than Jesus being born on earth and tabernacling with us that was through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, God did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. The moment that Jesus took his last breath on that cross and said, it is finished, the curtain, the very, very thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world was split down the middle. So what housed God's presence was then unleashed. God's spirit became available to all people who turned their hearts to God. It was this incredibly intimate moment where the word became flesh and dwelt among us and God's spirit was available to all people. It wasn't only accessible by gender or by race or by religious understandings that kept God at a distance. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that you are God's dwelling place. That you are the temple of God's spirit. That you house the spirit of God within you. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes her home in you. And there's something supernatural and unexplainable that happens. The chaos in your life calms within you. Your life circumstances might not change, but you are changed. And even speaking this out, I have words that fail to describe what I'm trying to convey to you, but I think most of us know what I'm trying to communicate. It's this weird thing that happens when life is impossible. This weird calm takes over our hearts when we lean into God's strength. And the, what's that? The management team. And the Holy Spirit makes these wordless groans, a speaking grace and truth back into our hearts and mind. And sometimes, you guys, sometimes when the Spirit seems silent and we can't hear her or the chaos seems too great, we need to only look back at the times when the Spirit was as close as our very breath. We need our people and the church community to remind us of those times and to remind us we're not alone. Because there are times in all of our lives when it feels like God is silent. 
All we need to do is look back at those times that God spoke so clearly. Sometimes I look at the story of Moses, and and Moses was like, he had so many times of silence, where are you, God? But he had that burning bush, and we always think, like, well, why can't I have more burning bushes in my life? He only got one. I think God speaks through those moments, and they need to be the anchors that keep us in those times when we feel like God might be silent. And when we can't hear, other people get to point us back towards those things. Anybody experience this in their life? Or have you ever felt the Holy Spirit's presence and the chaos and you, and, and you had to kind of be reminded of the memories that you had on the past to, to sustain you through harder times? Yeah. It's good to know I'm not alone. <laughs> Part of receiving God's peace is what, when we see in this passage of John 1, a part of receiving God's peace is becoming a witness of such peace. Those times that the Spirit has sustained you, has created uh, a, a sense of joy and peace and hope in the midst of any chaos around you, we are meant to be the testifiers of that truth. We are meant to share and witness the stories of that of God's light in the darkness, of God's peace in chaos. It's not meant to be something that just carries you through it, through the hard times. It's meant to be something that you share with others so that, that your story becomes something that they can lean on as well. We're meant to be witnesses of Jesus, testifiers of that we're not alone in our suffering and in our joy. So it says in verse 14, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then it says, John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was already before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That uh, word, or the phrase, out of his fullness, it is a, it is the word, Greek word for, it's called pleroma, and it's actually a shipping term, and it's used not only to denote, like, the super abundance of God, it was actually mainly only used in terms of shipping, where it would, it it, it uh, referred to a ship that was filled with people and freight and supplies for a journey where everything a person needs to get to their final destination is supplied for them. So John uses Pleroma, this super abundance of God, to let the reader know that they have everything they need for the journey ahead. And what they need is grace upon grace. The word grace is used in the book of John only in this passage we've read. In three verses, grace is not throughout the entire book of John. Charis, that word, is not mentioned at all. And it's because I believe that John used these three words about grace upon grace upon grace because John knew that we were meant to be anchored in that first chapter before we read anything else. So often we like open our Bible and we're like, oh, what does the Bible have for us today? Not realizing that we're not meant to just pull scripture out and look at it under a magnifying glass and see what it is. There's truth in that, absolutely. But we're meant to see it in the larger scheme.
scheme of things. And so for Paul or for, for John to say, this is where we place our hope in, in the grace of God, that's meant to go throughout the entire book of John. That the gospel of John is soaked in God's grace to where you live and move and have your being through such grace. The word became flesh, it says in verse 14. It shows us that God's commitment to and continuity with God's people, that when words fail us, when words fall short, and we're not sure how to speak truth over ourselves or other people on this journey of life together, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. The incarnation of God with us holds us. Jesus came to bring us to a close and abiding relationship with the Father because that is where life is. It says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That closest relationship with the Father means bosom. I know it's not a word that we use very often, but the Greek term of bosom is like this picture of a father holding his son in the closest of distance where heartbeats are shared and slowed to the same pace. That is the picture we get here. That we are invited into such intimacy of Jesus with the Father. And we're meant to experience this closeness, this overwhelming joy, this absolute passion, the intimate heartbeats with God like Christ has. Just because most of us have taken down our decorations and taken down our tree, it doesn't mean that the reality of Christmas is over. There's this obscene truth of the incarnation that is still just as incredible as it was on Christmas Day. God with us means that when our words fail and when chaos abounds and when it feels like the world might be coming down around us, there's this deeper truth that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness will never win. It never has the final word. And when words of comfort and care fall short, the word of God never fails. Because no one needs more accolades or hallmark cards or cliches. What we need is Jesus. Because it's Jesus, the word made flesh, who dwells with us and provides everything we would ever need for this journey together. He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yeah. Last thought before we go into our worship time. There's, um, the reason that I I felt like we needed to hear these things is because a lot of us do feel that darkness a little bit more in our life. And I think we have to be reminded of the truth of who we are as God's people to actually be moved into action. So here at Catalyst, we're not meant to just like hear good words and go on our week like, oh, that was a good sermon. Let's do the next thing. We're meant to be moved into action. And there's this old passage that's not in the Bible, but it's taking place out of the Bible. There's a, this, this Jewish way of learning called the Midrash. And the Midrash was like uh, rabbinic um, extensions of scripture that gave meaning to the scriptures as we have it. 
And there's this one Midrash story that I want to share with you. Uh, And it has to do with crossing the Red Sea when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea and they got to get across it to the other side. And they're afraid for their lives because the the Egyptians are coming. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to trust in God because they've never learned to trust in God. But they're hoping that they'll get across somehow. But nothing's happening. And for us, in the, the, the Christian way that we read it, we'll look at the, the thing and we, we think of Moses putting his, his staff into the sea and the sea parts and they all walk through on dry land. Because the Bible says that. The Midrash says that, no, that the, the waters never parted. It never parted until this man named Nashon took a step forward into the water and then took another step forward into the water. And nothing was happening. And he took another step forward into the water, and the water got to his knees, and it got to his hips, and it got to its chest, and it got all the way up here. And he doesn't know how to swim, and he's not going to make it through, and the water still is parting, and he gets all the way up to where only his nose was showing. And the water started to go down a little bit. And he kept walking forward, and the water went down a little bit. I think when it comes to following God, sometimes we don't have our entire path and the, the answer at the end of the path, going, oh, that's where I need to end up. I see it out there. Sometimes it's literally just saying, okay, I know who I am because of who you made me to be. I am confident in you with me and all those things, but I need just to trust you to take this one step because that's all I got right now. And the next step. And God is faithful for each step of the way. We might not know the end result, but we know every (laughs) step God is with us. The incarnation is God is with us. Amen. We're going to go into our time of response. There's communion. There is singing. We'll sing three songs together in worship. We will, um, yeah, there's uh, the bread that represents Christ's body broken for us. The juice represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and anything that has ever happened because of us or around us. God is always setting us on a new path. Uh, there's generosity boxes. I'll grab them. They're not out. Uh, but if you consider Catalyst your home, we always encourage you to look for ways that you can give here and beyond this place um, as God has called us to live lives marked by generosity. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. You are worthy. You are glorious. You are the name above all names. We trust you. We put our faith in you. Thank you for believing in us as well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.